Oh, hello. Welcome to Trained Body and Mind, a podcast exploring the cutting edge of holistic fitness. I'm your host, Jacqueline Beyer. Each episode, I connect with the world's leading experts and athletes to talk about mindset, movement, nutrition, recovery, and sleep, what we like to call the five facets of fitness. Today, I'm taking a figurative trip with a world-traveling, wilderness-trekking, self-defense-instructing activist on a mission to help everyone, starting with women and people of color, feel empowered to move through the world on their own terms. I want to be the example. I want to show people that, no, we're out here, we're doing these activities, and whether you think I belong here or not, I belong anywhere I decide to be. And I have just as much right to be in this space doing this activity as anybody else. And the more that I'm out there, I might encourage other young black women or anyone who's from a marginalized community to say, oh, she's out there. I guess I can do that too. Oh, I didn't realize that was something that we could do. So the representation matters. That's self-defense instructor and activist Nicole Snell announcing that she belongs here and that you do too. Now here, for Nicole, might be an alpine crossing in New Zealand. It might be deep underwater off the coast of Thailand. Or it might just be a late night run through her own city. But wherever here is, Nicole doesn't need a dude chaperone to help her hold the space. And she doesn't need any explanation of how she, a black woman, ended up here alone. What she does need is what she's already got the training, confidence, and readiness to defend herself, which, she'll be the first to tell you, only rarely involves a heel palm to the face or a knee strike to the groin. More often, it's a strongly worded warning, or even just a declaration in body language. And it's nearly always, at this point, something she does instinctively, without much conscious thought. Of course, if Nicole were just this extraordinary badass who'd roamed our pre-COVID planet in a series of self-realizing solo adventures, she wouldn't be here. Actually, scratch that. I'd still want to talk to her. But my point is that what makes Nicole so compelling isn't just that she has this training, confidence, and readiness to hold her own. It's that she's dedicating her life to sharing her skills with anyone who's ever felt vulnerable on a hike, run, or trip. It's that she believes we all have the capacity to live our best badass life. Today, we talk about how she's gaining real traction on this goal as the leader of the training program Girls Fight Back. We discuss a straight-up scary harassment experience that Nicole had while running. And I should probably drop a content warning for that one. It's an intense description of a pretty threatening pursuit. We get into how and why Nicole's blazing trails with classes and programs specifically for BIPOC communities. And we explore what Nicole would like the future of travel to look like for everyone. So I was doing a little stocky stock of your Instagram page, you know, as you do before you meet somebody. Of course. And I saw you did a solo trip in Peru. It's such a beautiful country. I did. I loved it. I had such an amazing time. I cannot wait to go back. I went on my honeymoon there and we did two weeks of like this eco adventure travel throughout the country. We started in the Amazon. We ended in Sacred Valley. What was it like to do that trek to Machu Picchu on your own? It was incredible. I came to the country by myself, but I ended up in a group with a bunch of strangers for the trek, but they were all amazing. We all became friends afterwards. I was the only American in the group. And, you know, I had a tent partner who I didn't know, but we got to know each other. uh, So it worked out great. And it was, it was truly magical. It was such a, I feel like a life-changing experience because I learned Mm -hmm. so much about myself on that trip. Uh, So amazing. You're taking me back. 
I definitely want to talk more about solo travel, but first I really want to get to know more about you and how you got to be so independent and confident and how you're helping other girls and women do the same. I read that you spent 12 years as a line producer in the television industry. I sure did. And then one day in 2014, you were like, I am done with this. I am dedicating my career to women's empowerment, sexual assault prevention, and advocacy. And that's quite a career shift. What inspired that? Yeah, it was a very scary career shift, if I can be honest. I had been working in production for 12 years, and I thought, okay, I'm on track to where if I just keep going, I'm eventually going to move up to VP and a senior VP. Like, that was my career trajectory. But I kept feeling like something was missing. Like, I had so many passions and so many organizations I wanted to donate to and causes that I cared about. And I felt really pulled in so many different directions. And I woke up one day and I said, well, when I wake up, what's the first thing that matters to me? And I thought, well, I'm a black woman. So why don't I do things for women and try to help marginalized women and other BIPOC women? What can I do? And so what ended up happening was I was contacted by a group I was involved with in college that did sexual assault prevention training and domestic violence training. And they had been contracted with the military to do trainings for U.S. military service members abroad and domestically and asked if I wanted to be involved. And I said, yes, that sounds great. But, you know, I have a full-time job. I don't know how much I'll be able to do. And what ended up happening is our whole department got laid off. And I thought, well, the universe is kind of leading me in this direction. So I put production aside and said, you know, I'm going to focus on this for a year and see how it goes. And if it's not sustainable, I'll go back to production. No problem. But I got involved with that. Through them, I met the owner of Girls Fight Back and Mm -hmm. saw that they do self-defense training at colleges and high schools. And I thought to myself, this is a job you could do. I had no idea that was even something that was possible. And I asked for a job and they had an opening for a speaker about three months later. And so I got trained and it just kind of all fell into place at the time I needed it to when I was really searching for some more meaningful work. You mentioned that you asked for the job at Girls Fight Back. And um, I think last year you actually ended up buying the company, right? And now you're their CEO. Yes, that is correct. (laughs) So I just want to pause and acknowledge that with praise hands. That is so amazing. Congratulations. Thank you very much. What is your big picture goal? What are you trying to do with your role at Girls Fight Back? So my big picture goal is to get this information to as many communities as possible with an emphasis on BIPOC, marginalized, and at-risk groups, groups that wouldn't necessarily be able to afford this training or have access to this training, either because of cultural beliefs or their economic status or their geographic location and work with other groups, sponsors, donors, et cetera, to try to bring this to as many people as possible and to expand into other areas. Amazing. It sounds like you have, you have your hands full there. <laughs> yes. Outside of being a self-defense instructor, you're a really active person, especially outdoors. You do a ton of hiking. What is it about hiking that you love so much? I love getting outside in nature. I grew up in the desert and just being outside, I feel so connected. I just feel free. I feel independent. I feel safe. I feel powerful. I feel like I'm able to just enjoy everything that nature has and can indulge that inner curiosity and that love of discovery that I have when I'm out and I see something new, a new trail, a new plant, a new animal. And you do a lot of solo hiking. So is there something special or particular about being active outside on your own versus with a group or a friend? 
I love being solo because I like the freedom of being able to do what I want when I want, change my mind, go at my own pace, kind of experience the nature, the outdoors, the trail that I'm on, experience it in my own way. And of course, that's not to say I don't like hiking with other friends because I do. I do like hiking with friends and I'm a hike leader with Black Girls Trek In, so I lead group hikes. But I like to be solo. It's meditation for me. That's how I feel about my solo runs sometimes. I like to go out without listening to anything and just do like a moving meditation out there. When did you start being active on your own? Early teen years, like 10, 11, 12. You know, we lived in a small desert town and there was lots of fields and outdoor spaces to explore very close to my house. And so I remember just going out. I would collect rocks. I caught lizards and played in the dirt and just loved kind of going out. And, oh, what am I going to see today? Of course, we didn't call it hiking then. You just called it, oh, you're going for a walk. (laughs) But I've always kind of loved just being by myself. And there were a lot of things going on in my life as a kid. And being Mm. outside of my house and being alone is where I felt safest. So I think to truly enjoy the benefits that you've talked about, there is an elevated level of awareness and safety and preparation that people, I think women especially, need when being active outdoors versus in a gym, even though, as you say, it is where you feel your safest. But I want to talk a little bit more about that and why. I have some numbers from a Runner's World survey that might help. It shows that 43% of women report being harassed, that 30% have been followed by a person in a vehicle, on a bike, or on foot, that 18% have been sexually propositioned, and 3% report being physically assaulted while running alone. Now, I've been verbally harassed a few times while on a solo run. I often choose to run in places where there are going to be other people because it feels a little bit safer. And like I said, often I go out without earbuds in, whether it's because I want to use that opportunity to try to have more of a moving meditation or just because I feel like I need to have my awareness level increased. So, you know, that lurking feeling that something bad might happen to you when you're out there doing the thing that you love to do, it, it just plain sucks, whether it's running or hiking. Have you ever experienced anything like this if you're comfortable sharing? Yeah, I'm comfortable sharing. And yes, unfortunately, I am one of those women that are in that statistic that have experienced that. I can count the times that I haven't been verbally harassed more than I can count the times that I have been because it happens almost every time I go out on a solo run. And that shouldn't be the norm. That shouldn't be okay. It's awful that we have to even have that shared experience because no one should be harassing us or bothering us when we're running. Just leave us alone. Let us let us run. Yeah. Don't if you don't have something nice to say, don't say anything at all. I remember very vividly a time it was about 10 years ago or so. I was training for a competition and I was out for a run by myself in the morning, daylight, 7 a.m. So there's rush hour traffic on Santa Monica Boulevard. And this man in a white car, he was going north and I was going south. And he was uh-huh. yelling at me from across a couple lanes of traffic, you know, hey, hey, baby, da da. And I just like looked at him and said, no, no, no. Not Mm -hmm. interested and kept running. He went up to the light and made a U-turn so that he was now on the same side of the street as me. And I said, no, I'm not. And then I just turned around and went back the other way. He went up to the next light and turned around and made another like U-turn. So we kept doing this. So no matter which way I turned, he would find a way to go up to the next block, the next street, anywhere where he could turn around so that he could end up on the same side of the street as me. And after about three or four times of this, I started to get really scared. I hadn't had any self-defense training at this point. I didn't have my phone on me. There was people around and no one was doing or saying anything. And I thought, what's he doing? Like, why aren't you leaving me alone? I'm making it very clear. I don't want to talk to you. Why do you keep doing this? 
And as I was running towards him, he pulled up and just like stopped in a lane of traffic and got out of his car. So I turned around and ran back the other way. And this went on. It felt like oh forever. God. It was probably my like- My heart rate is increasing as you're telling this yeah, story. It was probably like 10 or 15 minutes of this. And at one point I thought I lost him because I didn't see his car, but he had pulled up a side street, parked and came down. And I'm running and I passed the side of a building and I this guy puts his arm out with a bottle of water and he says, hey, sweetheart, here's a bottle of water for you. And I just turned to him and I yelled a bunch of obscenities and said, leave me the blankety blank blank alone. And I took off running and I ran into a donut shop that was on the corner there and I hid behind the chip display. And I remember the oh the person at the at the cash register was looking at me and I was like, shh, shh. Yeah, I mean, everybody's looking at you like you're the problem in this situation. Like, what is this woman doing running around? Yeah, and and so I, I, I hid behind the chip display, and I, like, looked through the window, and I watched him drive back and forth for about 15 minutes because he was looking for me. And after about another 15 minutes after I hadn't seen him anymore, I felt safe enough to run home. I was less than a mile from home, but there was no way I was going to let him know where I yeah. lived. So I've had that. I've had people saying really inappropriate, you know, sexual things to me, even just walking. I walk a lot by myself too. And several months ago, I was walking by a bus stop and the guy on the bench looks at me as I was walking by and goes, oh yeah, I'd like to touch that. And I turned to him and I said, don't you ever speak to me like that again. I don't know who you think you are, but you will not talk to me in that manner. And he just looked at me. He just looked at me. He didn't say anything else. And I was like, shame on you. And I just kept walking. I've remained quiet. Every time I've been verbally harassed on a run by myself, I just keep quiet. And I think that most people probably do, which is why his reaction was probably very surprised. Yeah. Those stories are so common, which is why you do what you do, why there's a need for that. Women aren't the only ones at risk when they're exercising alone outdoors. After the murder of Ahmaud Arbery, Black runners, male and female, have reported feeling fear or anxiety about going for a run again, something that should be mentally and physically freeing, but instead has them worried for their lives. As a Black woman, have you experienced these feelings from this perspective? Have they ever held you back from doing these things? I've experienced racism and microaggressions aimed at me for outdoor activities I've done, not necessarily running, but hiking. And when I travel solo and I'm doing an activity that people don't think, quote unquote, black people do this, I get questioned about what I'm doing. And I... I don't let it hold me back. And I can't obviously speak for all black people. I can only speak Mm -hmm. for my own experiences, but I want to be the example. I want to show people that, no, we're out here, we're doing these activities. And whether you think I belong here or not, I belong anywhere I decide to be. And I've just as much right to be in this space doing this activity as anybody else. And the more that I'm out there, I might encourage other young black women or anyone who's from a marginalized community to say, oh, she's out there. I guess I can do that too. Oh, I didn't realize that was something that we could do. So the representation matters. What do you think it is about exercising alone that makes someone particularly vulnerable to threats? I think the fear comes from the fact that women in our society and those who identify as women, societally, we are told that we're weak, that we are helpless, that we have to rely on other people who are taller, bigger, stronger than us to protect us because we're incapable of doing it ourselves. And Mm -hmm. that messaging gets inside of us. And then we feel like running solo is just inherently unsafe because Mm -hmm. if something happens, we can't do anything about it. And what I'm trying to do with the work that I do with self-defense and with Girls Fight Back is to change that narrative. We are not helpless. 
We are fully capable of protecting ourselves. It's not our responsibility to prevent violence from happening to us. But if we end up in a worst case scenario, I want us to know how to handle it so that we can go out there and do those things and feel empowered doing it. So when you say self-defense, what exactly do you mean by that? How do we define it? Well, I define self-defense as anything that we do to protect ourselves, and that is verbal as well as physical skills. A lot of times people think self-defense and they think punches and kicks and martial arts and all of those things. The physical aspect is a very big part because when we learn how to use our body to protect ourselves, it can change how we walk through the world and give us the confidence to do the things that we want to do. But in addition to that, using your intuition your awareness, Mm -hmm. having verbal skills. Those are the things that we're doing every day, whether we realize it or not, to manage Mm -hmm. our risk. And when we can learn how to set boundaries, we feel more comfortable speaking up for ourselves. We feel more confident saying what we need instead of saying, I'm sorry, or asking people for permission to respect our boundaries. Like instead of Mm -hmm. saying, can you leave me alone? Instead say, I need you to leave me alone or leave me alone. Just changing how we perceive our own boundaries is a huge part of self-defense. So my programs cover a lot of the non-physical as well as the physical because they fit so much together. And Jack, I don't know the last time I heel-palmed someone in the face. I think it's never. (laughs) But I can tell you the last time I set a boundary with someone or the last time I used my body to set a boundary with someone because these are the things we are going to use the most often. I love this definition because I'm guilty of being that person who initially thought of, like you said, the elbowing, the kneeing in the stomach and and that being it. But really, it's like a life skill that everyone can benefit from. And I know you focus girls and women specifically in marginalized communities, but is this something men should be listening to? One of the phrases I say is that everybody can benefit from learning the basics of how to protect yourself. And men experience violence as well. I think the statistics around men is men more often experience violence from strangers, whereas women more often experience violence from people they know. So having the skills to de-escalate a situation, to set a boundary, to you know feel confident being able to say what you need, being able to use your body in a way that de-escalates versus escalating a conflict, those are mm-hmm. things every Everybody can benefit from having. When we come back from the break, Nicole tells us all, especially me, what to do when we freeze up in a scary situation. Then she breaks down the top three things we all need to remember to be ready to defend ourselves. So what's the best way to learn self-defense? So much is virtual these days. Is this something that you can learn online or at least to a degree, or is it best to attend a training in person? I mean, if you can do an in-person training, I think that is incredibly beneficial. I do virtual and in-person, and my program is like 75 to 90 minutes, depending on the organization. And whether it's in-person or virtual, I cover a range of topics. And then I always advise that people continue the training I've taught them by taking a full contact class. And I'm also an instructor, a lead instructor with Impact Personal Safety, where we teach the full contact, full force self-defense against a padded instructor in the adrenalized state. So students are placed in realistic scenarios so that they learn how to deal with these scenarios that they might actually face in their real life. They learn how to use their voice and they learn the simple strikes against a fully padded instructor because getting it in your body with the procedural memory is really going to help. Yeah. I mean, I've had some self-defense training and I'm embarrassed to say that I've forgotten most of it, 
Like I know I'm physically strong as heck and I like to think that I'm also really mentally tough, but I do wonder how I would react in a threatening situation. I kind of worry I might just freeze and that freaks me out a little bit. Mm -hmm. How much of self-defense is physical versus mental? Majority of it is mental. What I always tell anyone who attends my courses is that you are worth fighting for. And that really is the key of it. We have to be willing to fight for our lives if it comes down to it, and understand that we are worth it and that we have everything we need on our body right now to be able to protect ourselves. And to your point about freezing, freezing is a natural response. There's no blame to be placed on anyone if freezing was the response they had to a dangerous situation because there's flight, fight, and freeze. So we're all yeah. normal responses. But what I teach and what impact teaches is we want to help reduce the freeze response, not get rid of it, but just reduce it and get you into action faster. And the simple skills that I teach are meant to be things that become part of your body, your procedural memory, not necessarily your declarative memory. So you're not memorizing mm-hmm. a bunch of moves. There's not 20 moves and a different mm-hmm. move for every situation. We keep it really simple, really gross motor movement. That way it's not about memorization. It's about being able to respond quickly in a situation. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Is this even possible? Could you share the top three easy to remember, no formal training necessary things that everyone listening right now can do to defend themselves if that moment ever arises? Yes. Of course. Absolutely. <laughs> the first thing I'm going to say is intuition. And I know a lot of self-defense instructors, we all kind of agree that intuition is the number one thing because human beings are the only animals who ignore their intuition. We think we know mm-hmm. better. We just give all these reasons why we shouldn't listen to that feeling, but we need to just trust that feeling. If something feels off, it is. Trust it and get yourself to a safe space and worry about, you know, whether or not you really feel like you were responding to your intuition or maybe you're responding to a bias that you had, but trust your intuitive feeling. The second thing that I will say is your awareness. And that is awareness is about being able to acknowledge what's happening around you. It doesn't mean you have to be on high alert every second and looking over your shoulder. I don't live my life that way. I don't want anyone else to live their life that way. But give yourself permission. So if you notice something, you're aware of something, give yourself permission to acknowledge that that's happening. Trust that intuition. And if you can get away, get away. And then the third thing that I say that is something anybody can do is learn the protective stance. I teach it and I call it the double boundary or in impact, we call it the ready stance, which is just your palms out, facing away from you, your elbows down. Imagine you're squeezing tennis balls under your armpits. Okay. So it's kind of like saying, you know, hey, leave me alone. Hey, go away. Stop. Back up. It's a very simple body language, body position that can tell someone, stop. Like the body language itself is sending a message. And then you say whatever you need to say on top of that. Like, hey, go away. Leave me alone. I don't want any trouble. Walk away. And I feel like having that And feeling confident to use that in situations can be really key. There's a lot of myth, I would say, around addressing someone who's making you uncomfortable. I hear it a lot. I hear it all the time in my classes. People say, well, I don't want to address someone because it's going to make them so mad that they're going to attack me, or I don't want to escalate the situation. So if I see someone following me, I'm just going to walk a little faster. And that just reinforces the predator-prey dynamic. That person is choosing someone they think is vulnerable or distracted or not paying attention. And so by turning and facing the person, now you're giving them eye contact. And you can even get into your protective stance then and just say, hey, are you following me? Or, hey, is there something you need help with? Or even just stopping and letting them pass. And if they don't pass, that gives you information. But instead of walking in fear, instead turn and address them because that in itself can be a deterrent. 
that person is not expecting a fight. They're not looking for someone to actually confront them. So by turning and giving them your attention and putting yourself in in ready stance can show that confidence. And that can be an effective deterrent to someone who's not looking for that type of an encounter. So the threat of violence is real, but there's also the threat of injury from other sources. If you're running in a neighborhood or on a road, there are vehicles. If you're hiking remotely, there's chance you might get lost or you might trip or fall or get in the path of an animal. I think we all saw the viral video of the trail runner in Utah backing away from that angry mama mountain lion. Yes. What was it? Like seven excruciating minutes. So do you have any advice for how people can keep themselves safe in situations where another person isn't the threat, but the environment might be? Yeah, I would say definitely your awareness of what you're doing is going to be key to that and also research where you're going. For instance, when COVID first hit and all the trails around LA shut down, I couldn't hike. So instead I would just walk in the neighborhood and I would walk in the streets and there was less traffic, but also I noticed a lot of people not really stopping at stop signs anymore or running through lights. So as I was out there, I had to shift my awareness and be more aware of cars and not have my earphones in. Or if I did, I would just have one in so I could always hear. Figure out where you're going. Research what animals you may encounter so you know how to respond. Because depending on where you go and what animal it is, that's going to determine how your response Mm -hmm. is going to be. Sometimes your life may depend on what animal and how you respond. If you're worried about getting lost, make sure that you have a GPS device or a personal locator beacon on you, a map either on your phone and you have a battery backup or you have a paper map and a compass and you know how to use those things, that preparedness can give you power. So daylight saving time is approaching. And for many of us, it's going to be dark later in the morning and earlier at night. Now I'm a morning exerciser. I need to move every morning. It's my mental health. So I don't want to let the dark stop me from going for a run or for being outside and getting my workout in. What can people like me do to remain safe in these environments? I like to run at night. I also like to walk at night. I'm a night exerciser. It's cool. We're holding it down. Yeah, right. Exactly. I love (laughs) it. (laughs) But I would say, again, trusting your intuition, kind of knowing where where you want to run and having just an idea, the lay of your land so that if you ran into danger, you would know where safety was. I advise if you're going to listen to headphones, make sure the volume is low enough so that you can still hear what's going on around you. And if something feels sketch, there's nothing wrong with turning around and going a different direction. With self-defense training, it's not about, oh, great, now I have all these skills. Now I'm going to purposely go into the worst part of town or whatever and, and test these out or you know anything like that. It's about having the skills to recognize danger. And if you can get away from danger, you can get away from it. And that's a win. And also Mm -hmm. the assumption that, oh, you're only at risk in quote unquote bad neighborhoods. No, violence and danger can be anywhere, you know? And if we're just saying, oh, I'm running in this neighborhood and it's a quote unquote good neighborhood, I have nothing to fear, then you're letting your awareness and your intuition down. So it's best to just use your intuition and your awareness about where you are and not let stereotypes or assumptions about where you are and who you're with make the decisions for you. And if you're running and you need to stop to address someone and set a boundary, that's okay to do that too. You might have to do that if someone is following you on foot or running behind you or something. You might have to stop, turn around, and say, look, I don't want you to follow me. Leave me alone. And if it's someone who's following you in a car— My suggestion is if you can get a license plate number and stay far away from the car, because a car could be a tool of kidnapping, but if you can get a license plate number, get a license plate number so that you can report it later if you can. Tomorrow, I'm going to go out for an early run and I already feel like I'm kind of amped on it now. Like I have all these things that I hadn't thought about or considered before, but 
even just in talking to you for a few minutes, I already feel so much more prepared and empowered. Oh, Jack, that makes my day. (laughs) This is going to be so valuable for our listeners. Beyond solo hiking, you are also a big fan of solo travel. I told you I'd bring it back here. Um, COVID realities aside, statistics are showing that women are becoming more adventurous than ever before. This is all really exciting. 86% of women are willing to travel alone. The average adventure traveler is the 47-year-old female. And between 2013 and 2019, we saw a 230% increase in the number of women-only travel companies. Why do you think women are traveling more freely today than they have been in the past? Oh, I think that the world has opened up a lot more and there's a lot more empowerment education out there for women. Women are realizing our power, not just our power in our abilities to go out and do the things we want, but our economic power as well. The world is a great big place. And if we want to go and explore it and see it, there's not anything holding us back from doing that. Understanding, of course, that people in different economic situations may be limited as to where they can and can't go. But I'll tell you, I still get people that tell me that traveling solo is not safe for women and that I shouldn't do it or I should be careful. And I tell them, do you know who you're talking to? Yeah. (laughs) Do you know who you're talking to? Um, I am going to go and do the things I want to do and there's nothing that you can do to stop me. I am going to explore and live my life as freely as I want to because I know that I have the skills to handle myself. And that's what I want to give to other people. Well, we've been talking a lot about potential for danger and potential for risk. And that comes with adventure like a solo through hike or traveling to a foreign country or even just going out for a run by yourself. And this can dissuade people from chasing new experiences. I certainly hope that our conversation doesn't dissuade anyone from solo exercising, adventuring, or traveling. I really want people, women especially, to be aware and feel prepared and even empowered so that we can all just continue to do the things that we love and to push our boundaries in a safe way. And that's why I really wanted to have this conversation with you. How have you personally learned to combat any feelings of doubt or fear that you might have had. There's a book that I highly recommend called The Gift of Fear by Gavin DeBecker. I actually have it over here on my shelf. For me personally, it's not about eliminating fear because fear helps let us know that there's a problem and helps us figure out what we need to do to combat it. But I don't think we want to live in fear. We don't always want to be fearful and have fear control our lives. And the skills that I teach can help people know how to handle fear when it arises. I know we were talking earlier about my trip to Peru and I was out in the market just exploring and I noticed a man following me. And at first I did the intuitive thing, you know, the the denying your intuition. Oh, he's probably not. Maybe he's just curious about me because I look different. Maybe he's, I'm just making something out of nothing, whatever, whatever. And then I just finally said to myself, no, I need to address this. And my heart was pumping and I was thinking, well, you know, there's a lot of shops out here, but I don't know if they're working with him. I I don't know. There's like pillars lining the, the walkway and he would hide behind a pillar and then go to the next one. So finally I just turned around and when he came across the next pillar, he stopped when he saw me looking at him. And we had this epic stare down for about 10 seconds. And then he turned around and walked away. And that reinforced to me that he was following me. If he wasn't, he would have just walked by and been like, what is this strange woman doing? Just standing, staring at this pillar and walked right by. But that reinforced to me that that happened. So by teaching the skills that I teach, I feel like that gives people options for when they do feel fear. Do you have any advice for people to help them tell the difference between what might be a real or a rational fear versus an irrational one? I remember 
I was on a trip. I was bushwhacking through Denali National Park in Alaska a few years ago with two other people I barely knew, which is a whole different story. But I was so concerned the whole time that I was going to come face to face with a grizzly bear and I could not enjoy the moment at all. I had no pleasure being out in this like beautiful Alaskan wilderness. And not that the fear of encountering a wild animal in its natural habitat is irrational, but statistically it wasn't likely that we'd even see a bear, much less be in a crazy situation with one. So in that moment where people are just obsessing over what could go wrong, how can you help people get out of their heads? That's such a great question. And I have had people ask me that before. You know, how do I get out of that fear loop? How do I get out of the anxiety or the repetitive thoughts? And full disclosure, of course, I am not a therapist. I am not (laughs) licensed to offer professional advice in this way, but I can talk from my own experience and just say, sometimes the fear is because we're afraid of it happening and we're afraid that we're not going to know what to do if it does happen. And by offering people strategies and information education to then know that they have decisions they can make if they face it, that can alleviate some of that fear and some of that anxiety. You know, it's the same as, you know, some folks are terrified of flying. No matter how much you say driving is more dangerous, there may be other things rooted in there that speaking with a professional that can help them in those ways can be beneficial. And then also, I mean, I don't want this to sound really dark, Mm -hmm. but no matter how prepared and how aware you are, things can go wrong, whether it's from a personal safety standpoint or an accident that, you know, you had no control over. So -hmm. we can all only ever do the best that we can and take the risks that we're comfortable taking. And there may be people that take my course or watch my videos or want to learn from me that are thinking to themselves, I'm never going to go on a solo trip. I am Mm -hmm. never going to solo hike. But for them, it's walking their dog at night or going to the grocery store by themselves, something like that, that can be the thing that they want help with being able to do it by themselves. Is there a particular story or a couple of stories that stick out to you where you've really seen someone step outside of their comfort zone thanks to your guidance? I have. A lot of people connect with me on social media, and I have had folks share that they're taking their first solo hiking trip. And they were always afraid of doing it before, but now they feel comfortable actually trying it. And they've like shared with me that they did it and shared how it went. And I just get so excited hearing about that. And I had a woman from another country who had messaged me that her mom and her had been watching my videos, my outdoor defense videos. Mm -hmm. And her mom actually had to use the knee strike to the groin when a man tried to attack her in a marketplace. And the woman who shared this with me just was so excited that her mom was able to use it. She said her mom felt so proud of herself and felt so confident that she couldn't believe it actually worked. And I was like, yes, it works. I mean, I hope no one has to use what I teach, but Mm -hmm. if they do have to use it, I want them to have it there as an option. And she used that option. And now she said her mom is feeling so much more confident and she was just so proud of it. And, and she stays in communication with me. And that really, that really warms my heart too, to know that I was able to help someone just with a, a video. Well, and the coolest thing about that story is that, yeah, obviously it was critical in the moment, but it has had lasting effects on her. I mean, what you're teaching is really changing lives. What is your vision for the future of women as outdoor athletes, explorers, travelers, et cetera? 
I want every woman who wants to try a new activity or do any of these things to feel safe and confident being able to do that. I want there to be no barriers for their access, regardless of their gender identity or their their race, their ethnicity. I am hoping we get to a place in our world where women feel safe, feel confident, especially Black women and BIPOC women, to not feel like any part of how they identify is going to put them at risk when they're doing these new activities and that the world will see women as fully capable, independent, competent, autonomous human beings capable of making our own decisions and going out and exploring and doing these things in a way that every you know man that has come before us does it. I want to co-sign on all of that. <laughs> yes. All right. <laughs> What's your vision for the future of Girls Fight Back? I would love every elementary high and high school to have a Girls Fight Back program at least once a year. I would like every college to have a Girls Fight Back or Students Fight Back. I would like to start a nonprofit arm of the company so that I can do more research and more outreach. I want to prevent violence. I want to end sexual assault, sexual violence around the world. And it's going to take more than just what I'm doing. What I'm doing is one tiny piece of that. So I want to work with organizations that are working on policies and getting justice served and laws being changed and getting consent and boundaries education to younger and younger audiences and offering more survivor support, especially outreaching to communities that need it most. I want to connect and do more to work with all of them so we have a, a more comprehensive way of addressing the problem. It'll be exciting to watch that evolve over the next couple of years. All right. So before we wrap this up, I just want to admit I am one of those people who have never taken a solo trip. And after this conversation, I feel like I've really missed out on something. And it's not that I can't do it at some point in the future, but I don't know, maybe it gets harder when you have a family, although something tells me that's not a valid excuse. <laughs> <laughs> I highly recommend it. I mean, go somewhere local first. Maybe just go like a few hours away and take a weekend solo trip or go to a country that also speaks your language so that at least you don't have a language barrier to contend with your very first mm -hmm. solo trip out. The very first solo trip I took out of the country was to Rome. And I thought, oh my gosh, I am going to be half the world away from anybody I know. But I got to Rome and I checked into my hotel and just walked out of my door and I'm looking down a street that's unfamiliar and I have my little map all folded up and just the exhilaration of it, of knowing like I get to go and walk wherever I want to walk, stop whenever and wherever I want to stop eat where I want, change my mind, have a plan, change it. Just the feeling of independence of being free. I just felt free. It was amazing. And I haven't, I haven't been able to stop since. <laughs> You're selling it. Well, and it's the way you just put it is so approachable. Anybody can go and take even a day trip if you can't take a weekend trip and kind of build up that confidence. Absolutely. Nicole, you are so inspiring. Thank you for making me and all of our listeners a little bit more excited about and equipped to take on the outdoors on our own. Let's see if we can get those bad statistics to drop a little bit and the good ones to rise. Yes, I am here for that. Jack, thank you so much for having me. It's been so wonderful talking with you and sharing all this with you. You're amazing. Oh, you too. Yay. All right, now that I've got my confession out of the way that I've never traveled by myself, I think I'm ready to start making some plans. Backpack? Check. A ton of beautiful natural spaces within a day's drive? Check. The ability to turn and face a potential attacker, establishing a figurative line in the sand? Thanks to Nicole, I'd say I'm about there. 
Plus, now I have a ton of leads for resources online and in person to get me ready to head out into the wilderness with nothing but my wits. And maybe a cowbell to warn the bears off. And now you've got those resources too. I strongly encourage anyone interested in self-defense, exploring natural spaces, or solo travel to check out Nicole's website. The link's in the show notes. You'll find a lot more of what Nicole offers in person, a mix of clear, practical skills, and maybe, more importantly, a living example of why you'd want these skills. Because watching Nicole as she zip lines, scuba dives, mountain treks, horseback rides, and midnight runs through life, it's hard not to think, hell yes, how can I do that? The answer might be practicing a little self-talk, using one of Nicole's maxims, you're worth fighting for. And if you don't know how to fight yet, how about you're worth learning for? On the next episode, I'll be talking with legendary long-distance runner and coach Shalane Flanagan as she prepares for the last few races of a truly historic feat, six world marathon majors in 42 days. This has been Trained. Talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to Trained. Just a reminder, always talk with your doctor before starting any training or nutrition program. The information we provide isn't a substitute for any medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. And the individual opinions expressed here are just that, opinions.